Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut as we parse this week's tech and IT news. We're going to talk about Juniper sidling up to ChatGPT, Microsoft unbundling teams in the EU, financial results, some FU and more. Uh, we don't have any ad today, but we do have a tech bite and we're going to talk to the Network Automation Forum. This is a new organization and they are launching their upcoming inaugural in-person conference called AutoCon Zero. It's an independent event taking place uh, November 13th and 14th in Denver, Colorado. So uh, tune into that tech bite to find out about what the Network Automation Forum is all about and and what this uh, live in-person event is all about. Ethan uh, Banks and I, this is Drew Conmiari, will both uh, be there at the event. So if you're interested, there'll be links in the show notes or you can go to networkautomation.forum to find out more. If you like Network Break, check out our other podcasts, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, and Full Stack Journey, not to mention our newest podcasts, Kubernetes Unpacked and Heavy Wireless and Heavy Strategy. It's nerdy tech analysis and great conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development. You can find them all at packetpushers.net. All right, let's get into some FU or some follow-up. Um, we had talked to Greg uh, about private 5G not really getting a lot mm. of uptake. And a listener wrote in with a very long FU uh, about uh, why, uh, based on his experience talking with folks, that is. I'm going to give a brief summary, and then you can dig into some more details. First, uh, mm -hmm. 5G chips that support power co uh, conservation are really expensive. Uh, if you're talking about putting them in hundreds or thousands of devices in a factory, uh, you can get cheaper low-row WAN chips uh, that have just as good or better penetration than 5G. And frankly, Wi-Fi 6E is also cheaper and can get theoretically higher throughput than private 5G, which has lower qualm modulation. Uh, so there are cases where you might want private 5G if, you know, security and privacy are a top mm -hmm. concern. So, for example, a hospital. Uh, and if you're adding a private 5G SIM to, you know, an expensive medical device, maybe that cost is much more bearable than it would be, say, in a manufacturing or factory environment. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things. He, uh, the person who wrote in, and thanks for your feedback, you did ask to be anonymous. So that is, of course, not yeah, a problem. But they basically wrote a blog, which is really good. <laughs> <laughs> which is great. Uh, but they were actually inside the 5G uh, for working for a company inside of 5G and done a bunch of testing and evaluation. And he's basically making a lot of the points that I made and said, yes, he's confirming his experiences in the real world. And he was saying, like, if you're going to use mass devices on 5G, there's a whole bunch of problems. The power conservation is a, is a thing. You aren't going to use 5G for very small, low-cost devices because the cost of a 5G baseband modem is very expensive. You're talking several dollars a unit. You're not going to make a product that's, you know, consumable at that sort of a price point, but you are, you can use, you know, NB-IoT or low RAWAN or one of the very, very low power standards, which 5G has sort of rejected. In theory, it's sort of subsumed into the standards, but in a, another way, they, they haven't been quick to drop it up. Um, and he's also highlighting that the cost of manufacturing those devices is very high. So you have to be shipping millions of devices to make that scale out work. Mm -hmm. And at this point in time, putting 5G inside of, you know, smart light switches, for example, you know, consumer light switches, that's just not going to happen. And then his point is, of course, that the alternatives to 5G, private 5G work pretty well. So NB-IoT, LoRaWAN, sub-gig, low-speed, you know, button batteries, the chips that do those are, are very cheap because those standards were designed with the chip manufacturing. And then he also points out that 5G throughput is not good as you think, especially since Wi-Fi 6E is available. So the data throughput isn't good. The one thing he doesn't mention is that range. So one area where 5G is good is the range. You can get several kilometers of range from a single tower. Mm -hmm. Plus you also get admission control. So you have to have a SIM. It has to be synced to the network. Right. You, when your 5G device connects, it goes to a central controller and says, "Are your is your device allowed? Is your SIM allowed?" But at the same time, 
the telcos have been very slow to adopt eSIMs. We've talked about um, you know, the idea that there's a generic SIM inboard of the device. And if you want to, instead of having to physically insert a SIM into a phone, which is kind of so, even today, that's so 1996, putting a SIM into a device to access the network is so retro, feels retro to me. Yeah. Um, and there's this eSIM technology where you'd be able to use software to program the SIM and say, this is my number, this is my IMEI, this is my registration with this particular telco. And the telcos have really pushed back against that. They really don't want that to happen. And that's kind of stuck them because now they can't sell 5G, private 5G, or even 5G generally, because without that, you know, any device has to be big enough to put a SIM in. Now, even with a micro SIM, it's still a very big and it needs a slot. So that means it has to be, can't be weatherproof, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a whole bunch of things here about 5G. And he talks extensively about, you know, even if you're using the CBR, CBRS spectrum, you can get very wide um, bandwidth throughput. So when you're on Wi-Fi, if you're using 40 megahertz channels or, you know, or multiple channels, we talk about MIMO, MIMO, you can actually get multi-gig now out of Wi-Fi without too much pain at all. The only limitation is range. You know, you're really only talking two to 300 meters, maybe up to 500 meters on a good mm -hmm. day. Whereas if you can get a really good license to some of the lower end spectrum because you're remote, like if you're in a mine, you can go and use the 700 megahertz spectrum and go for go to town because you're not, you know, you can get a permit because you're not causing anybody any problem. Right. So, yeah. right. But that's a pretty limited use case, right? You're not going to be making a bunch of 5G equipment, right? You're not going to be adding 5G networking to those devices if it's just a handful of use cases in remote areas. So it's got to become mainstream for this to work out, I think. Yeah, again, I take his point that if there are, there could be use cases where that security capability, that ability to say you, you need a specific SIM to get onto this network, even to get on this network, could have use cases, particularly in a place with sensitive information like a hospital. Um, and also, you know, if it's a large hospital campus, maybe that that ability to have a longer range than you get with Wi-Fi could be appealing. But yes, in a, in a factory manufacturing setting, I can see why private 5G hasn't taken off yet. Yeah, much cheaper to just put some Wi-Fi. Those chipsets sure. are everywhere. You know, yep. I think ultimately we'll see um, base stations around LoRa and NB-IoT. People will choose sensors that do that. And that's super cheap. You can get 10 miles out of one of those. Very low data speeds, like 50, 100 kilobits, maybe up to a megabit at best. But equally, you can run them on a, battery, on a button battery for 10 years. You know, sometimes all you want is a... Is the door open? Is the door closed? And there's a button battery installed and it takes yep. 10 years for it to discharge, you know. Right. That's what right. those are, the, you know, put together for. So different sort of sensors. Thing. Yep. Yeah. Mm. So we do always welcome comments, corrections, clarifications uh, at packetpushers.net slash FU. Uh, you don't just have to agree with us. We're always happy to get feedback that uh, takes a different point of view. So if uh, you ever hear us say something that you disagree with uh, or just want to make a comment or a clarification on uh, packetpushers.net slash FU, we love to hear from you. And uh, if you want, we'll talk about it on the show and we can keep you anonymous if you prefer, because that's fine with us. Yeah. And it's very helpful to be told we got it mostly right. Um, because we can come on and say, yes, we've actually had confirmation that, you know, the viewpoint that I put out there is confirmed by other people who are experts in that space. Generally, I've done a fair bit of work, um, but sometimes I can come up with an opinion is wrong and I'll happily admit when I'm wrong. So as we've done, as that's the whole purpose of FU. I mean, frankly, was, I'm also happy to be corrected because I want to make sure we're putting good information out there. So yeah, if we ever make a mistake or misstate something, then yeah, let us know. Yeah, let us know. Vendors should contact us and say, we don't agree with your perspective or... You know, maybe awesome. if you thought of it, I'd welcome that. I'd rather get it right and be fair to everybody than to be, you know. Right. For sure. Yes. Yeah. 
All right, well, let's jump into some news. Uh, we'll start with Juniper Networks. They've announced they're integrating their Marvis virtual assistant. Uh, this works on their wired and wired wireless and wired campus networks. Uh, they're going to integrate that with ChatGPT. Uh, so Juniper's Marvis is a conversational assistant for networkers. Juniper says it can alert engineers to problems, it can suggest actions, and it can automate responses to problems. It also has a natural language query capability. So engineers can ask questions like, hey, what happened on Greg's Zoom call at nine o'clock this morning? And then get sort of a summary of data and telemetry related to that query. Uh, this ChatGTP integration with Marvis is to enhance queries and outputs uh, for Juniper's technical documentation and the Juniper Miss knowledge base. Uh, so basically, if you are looking up something in the technical documentation, you can use ChatGTP to get a, make that query and then get a, you know a nice tight summary. Uh, basically, to me, it seems like an enhanced search feature. Yeah, I think that's that's what people are doing. They're letting the LLM, large language model, which is what ChatGPT is one. There are many, of course. ChatGPT just got there first. Um, most of the vendors are choosing it for now. I suspect in time we'll see the vendors switch over to an open source uh, LLM, maybe the Facebook Llama model, and there's others coming out from other institutions that are probably will be good enough in a couple of years. Um, vendors don't want to pay OpenAI for this unless particularly there's some feature or functionality or a licensing issue perhaps. And increasingly what we're finding is that ChatGPT appears to have stolen a significant amount of content and may have legal repercussions. But anyway, that's for another day. Um, I do see ChatGPT or you know LLMAI is generally like the booty shorts of our software. And it's kind of funny to watch a bunch of old men walking around with a bunch of booty shorts on saying, oh, I've got some AI. <laughs> is that an image that, uh, that we should frame? <laughs> not an image I wanted, but I think it's appropriate. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Uh, I these, do you have people up on stage prancing around talking about how they're glomming onto ChatGPT? Yeah, and AI, and and we're covered in AI. Can't you feel the feel the source? You know, um, <laughs> feel the glitter. Yeah, so I, yeah I, I've seen a number of demos in this area where people are using an LLM AI like ChatGPT to go out and query documentation and get coherent answers. So you can make a plain query you know, uh, in your favorite language, and it will go out and analyze the documentation. So I think this is very much a, a I talk about narrow AI in general or broad AI. And and this is this is where you say, like, I want to use chat GPT to formulate a query to query a model that we generated out of our documentation. So you're using the large language model to structure a query, and then it goes and looks at this data that they've created and comes back. So it lets you make natural language queries. Now, that's something that we've been working on for decades, but it's never really worked. You know, improving search so that search works better is basically what we've done here. But what I'm also seeing now is the application of this chat language uh, in help desk support tickets. So I saw some demos of a, I can't remember the name of the product and I didn't keep a link, so I apologize. Um, but, you know, if you're raising a tech support ticket, the AI will come back and say, it'll take your description and start asking you qualifying questions. Is your network out? Is it sort of working? Is it, you know, and because you're asking questions around a narrow thing, the LLM can then interrogate a model, which is much more narrowly focused. And that has also been demonstrated in one of the, the things as well. So you can ask questions like, show me all of the Zoom traffic flows for a given desktop. Well, that's actually quite hard to do if you're trying to use a structured language. If you just can say an NMM, just, you know, blah, 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 and bang. So it's worth thinking about how LLM can work in this way, I think. Yeah, I think it's a, a safe way to bring uh, an LLM into your organization if you're just focusing it on uh, one, a bunch of content that you own outright uh, and just sort of restricting it to that content technical documentation. And a company like Juniper probably has 
reams and reams and reams of documentation that would be potentially difficult to search through on your own. So having a tool like ChatGPT mm -hmm. to streamline that search to uh, be able to summarize and also hopefully point you back to the original source uh, for that information makes good sense. It also, I think, does pair nicely with Marvis, which is strictly focused on uh, wired and wireless logs, telemetry, performance data, and so on. So a very specialized uh, AI tool uh, paired up to a more general AI tool makes good sense. Uh, I, I do think... It, Juniper essentially doesn't really, uh, I hate to say the term bandwagon because I feel like Juniper has been legitimately working on uh, AI for a long mm -hmm. time now, but it does allow them to sort of uh, sit next to ChatGPT at the cool kids table in the cafeteria now. <laughs> it sure does. And also brag about how far ahead they are, right? A little and, bit. <laughs> and rightly so. Yes. Um, yes. So, but I, I would also point out that, you know, when I think it was a year ago, we talked about what AI means to networking. And I proposed that, uh, I said that AI will become a centaur. It's half man, half horse. You've got the power of the horse, but the brain of a human. And my view is that AI remains the power. So a horse provides the power, the ability to, you know, do something. Mm -hmm. And but you still need a person to direct it. So you still need a person to ask an intelligent question to get an intelligent answer, right? right. But the the use of an LLM inside of a data, you know, to structure a query into a into a model is that, you know, that's a centaur type, you know, that's enhancing, you know, like a powered armor type thing that lets you lift more than you could other otherwise lift. Mm -hmm. And I still believe that that's the view of AI. AI isn't going to replace, it's going to empower or enhance or amplify. And this, I think, is in that field. The examples, you know, being able to make a query on LLM is not changing. It doesn't replace work because it might off, you know, as we're seeing increasingly, it could just be wrong. So you still need a person in there. Right. And that's why I think Juniper is limiting it to a bunch of technical documentation as opposed to the whole internet. Uh, so you avoid issues like hallucination and misinformation and all that. So mm, def yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Links in the show notes. If you want to read up on it, we'll move on. Palo Alto Networks is aiming to make its cloud delivered security services, also known as SASE, uh, more palatable for managed service providers. Enhancements include support for third party SAML based identity providers, more scalable incident management capabilities, and a dark mode for all those knock operators. If you're working in a knock and it's three in the morning, you probably want a dark mode, right? Because you don't want to disrupt your right. sleep cycle. Maybe, yes. maybe not. Um, I think the, the thing that I took away from this, Drew, is that we're seeing a lot of uh, information come from the SSE, SSE vendors about managed service providers. And it's becoming clear to me that many people are upgrading their WAN networks are being upgraded into SASE by their telcos. So that is a lot of companies who outsource their WANs, their, you know, their native web using MPLS VPNs have now the MSPs are going in and saying, we don't want to lose this business from people. We don't want to lose SASE. And they're going in and saying, we can upgrade your MPLS VPN with SD-WAN and SASE. And companies are going for it instead of just doing it themselves. I mean, it, to me, it's kind of crazy that something so simple and so easy to operate is not something they're choosing to do themselves and increase their cost savings. But clearly the vendors are responding to increased demand from the MSSPs. And they're offering more and more features that are specific to that market. We've seen flexible licensing because customers come and go. They want to upgrade or downgrade their services. And the MSSPs don't want to be like grown ups and actually operate a business. So they want to shift that risk onto somebody else. Uh -huh. uh, and of course, they want multi-tenancy and security and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I, I think it's it's interesting to see how the market is changing. So instead of customers just building their own SD-WAN SASE, they're very simple to operate. You could save a fortune, like 70% is the norm when you cut your MPLS VPN and replace it with an SD-WAN. 
And uh, I don't understand why people would turn to MSSPs, but I also understand that there's a business dynamic. CIOs just go like, no, I just want this telco to do it all. And they don't really care how much it costs. So whatever. Mm. Uh, To that point about, you know, upgrading your customers from an MPLS service or VPN service into a SASE, Palo Alto has also announced SP Partner Interconnect, uh, which Palo Alto says makes it easier to tie its SASE pops into service providers core and transport networks. So I think that does tie into your your point there. Mm. Uh, I obviously, if you're an MSP and you've had a managed firewall or managed IDS service for ages, turning it over to a managed uh, SASE uh, makes perfect sense. I don't know why necessarily someone would want that, but there is a market for it. So it makes perfect sense to me that Palo Alto would see this opportunity to department with those uh, MSPs that might've been managing Palo Alto hardware firewalls, uh, just put it all into SASE. Yeah, you know, and if you're a vendor, you set up a team and, you know, you get an awful lot of sales from a handful of customers. So there's a lot to be said for that, right? Sure, absolutely. (laughs) But it comes with the pain of having to provide features that those people want. And you have to deal with telcos, which is also a pain point, right? But I think increasingly telcos have capital to spend on projects, but they have want to have minimal costs. And what they're looking for here is they're happy to invest in building a SASE service, but they want the OPEX to go away somehow. And that's what they're asking the vendors. A lot of the features are angled into that type of minimizing the operational cost. Yeah, I think the real stickiness in a SASE service comes with setting all of the policies for all of those security controls. I'm not sure how you would hand that off to an MSP. Maybe there's more of a MSP and customer partnership on the initial policy setup and so on, because I think those could get pretty gnarly. But uh, maybe once that's done, then it's uh, easier operations in the long term. Yeah, I think that a lot of telcos now are focused on reducing cost. They don't mind spending capital. Mm-hmm to build a business and and have a revenue, but they want to keep the costs under control and keep the headcount under control. Whereas in the past, they would have been more sanguine about it. But I think now they're much more disciplined about their business models. And they're saying to the SASE vendors, this has to be easy to operate. And also there, just remember too, there's no one to hire. There's a lot of people, there's not a lot of people out there with the sort of skills that are needed to operate these things. And maybe that's why Good customers point. are turning to telcos. And it's not like telcos actually want to train anybody or anything. You know, it's not like they actually want to invest in people. So, yeah. All right, we'll move on. Uh, Digital Realty, it's offering co-location services targeted at high-performance computing and AI workloads. Uh, And one element of the offering that jumped out to you, Greg, is the ability to provide up to 70 kilowatts of power per cabinet. I mean, come on, 70 kilowatts. That is a lot of power. Like 70 (laughs) kilowatts into one rack, you know, all day, every day. That's just a phenomenal amount. Like I can remember when I first started out, in building data, you know, a rack of service is a long time ago in the mid nineties, we used to think two kilowatts into a rack or three kilowatts, you know, like uh, in Australia or the UK, which is two countries that I I worked in, uh, you know, when you've got a 10 amp or a 13 amp socket, which is the standard household socket, that's a three kilowatt connection when you can run 10 and 13 amps down it. Right. So that's Uh two to three kilowatts. That was how we did it. 70 kilowatts. That is a lot of amps that you're running into that rack. Um, and that also means that if you're burning up to 70 kilowatts, you're also cooling up to 70 kilowatts. So there's yes. a, it's a double whammy. You're yep. burning that much power, and then roughly you have to then cool that any any power that's consumed also has to be cooled. I mean, 70 kilowatts, how many customers want this, right? And, and that's the challenge. That's the thing I'm, I'm thinking to myself. Who was it that asked for 70 kilowatt rack, or is this just marketing fluff? 
Well, I mean, if you're going to run a bunch of GPUs, maybe you are going to get up to 70 kilowatts. I don't know. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, it's a stalking oh, amount of power. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You look at a, a, an, an NVIDIA A100 system, which got eight GPU boards, but, you know, banged onto a motherboard. And if you're running an InfiniBand switch, I think one area that I did think of is I, uh, I'm in a number of chat rooms with, you know, AI startups, and they're starting to do the math on AI outsourcing of hardware to AWS and Azure and Google. And a number of them are now saying, we need to make a choice to do this ourselves because it's actually cheaper even just for a single run to go out and buy the hardware and put it in a rack. Now, the challenge, of course, at the moment is getting a hold of the hardware. There's like a year's lead time if you want sure. to buy an NVIDIA. But assuming you've actually managed to get a hold of some hardware, they're saying it's like half the cost of doing the same. You know, By the time you've generated, moved your data into AWS, stored it in AWS, run the model, the pricing around it is so extortionate. They're saying it's actually cheaper to go and do it yourself if you can find the capital to get through this hurdle. And increasingly yeah. the startups are doing that. And that that, di that didn't make sense at first. And then I said, well, hang on. The point here is that startups have a lot less access to capital now. And that capital isn't actually thought of as, you know, when they get funded, they get given a pot of money to achieve a goal. If you go out and burn that on a single run at AWS and you fluff it, you, let's say you let's say you got 5 million in funding and right. you spend 500,000 on a model run, well, Maybe you could buy a whole AI cluster for a year and a powered rack for you know 1.5 million, and you could run models over and over and over and over and over, right? Well, that's that's cheaper, right? Sure. So, um, and increasingly now that money's got value, you've got to be able to. So increasingly, startups are focused on operational cost. What's the whole life cycle cost? Because in before it was like let's just go and run it, let's spend the money, blow the money, show some results, and then we'll go for another round of funding. Well, now that the second round of funding or the getting that more funding is getting harder because of the interest rates, you know, because of inflation, startup investing means that you know now it's like hang on, we've got to look carefully at our long term costs. We've got this much, and I think a number of startups, especially in AI, are starting to say we need to own that hardware as a way of managing costs. Yeah, so maybe and that's where it is. as a colo, you sort of are splitting the difference with the traditional infrastructure as a service like AWS or Azure in that the colo has the facility, they've got the location, they've run the power, they've set up the cooling, they've got the physical security. Presumably they have some kind of you know power failover in case of a, a power outage or whatever. So there you are getting some of those hosted benefits that you would get from AWS without all the AWS charges on top, as long as you're willing to pony up uh, for the hardware and uh, bringing your own software as well, which you would have to do in AWS anyway, so... Mm, yeah, yep, yep. Um, so maybe so there's your I, customer base. <laughs> maybe. You've answered your own know. question. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I, I think that people are starting to do the numbers on the cloud instead of just blindly and saying, when speed was a thing, go to the cloud, right? If you wanted infinite resources and speed and you didn't care about money, now all of a sudden it's like, hang on, money. And that's why the growth of clouds has dropped from 40% to 20%. They're still growing at 20% per quarter, which is amazing. Right. still unbelievable, but that's a lot slower than it was before. And that's because people are saying, hang on, I need to be careful. And I think you're going to see much more pricing pressure placed on the off-brand clouds. Um, you know, they've been able to get away with massive price rises over the last, you know, nothing gets cheaper in the cloud anymore, despite the original promises that went out that nobody seems to call about. But yeah. Right. It's a classic Hotel California move. Yep. Yeah, yeah.
All right, I'm moving on. Microsoft has announced it's going to unbundle its Teams application from its Microsoft 365 and Office 365 product suites in the EU. The announcement comes in response to an antitrust investigation launched by the European Commission in July of this year. As you know, Teams provides chat and video functions, and Microsoft offers it for free in the bundle. Uh, Salesforce, which owns the chat competitor Slack, filed a complaint with the EU Commission back in 2020, and I guess the Commission has now gotten around to it. Uh, the move by Microsoft comes ahead of any specific instructions from or rulings by the European Commission. Uh, so this antitrust investigation is still ongoing, but I think with this announcement, Microsoft is hoping to get out ahead of it and be like, "Oh, look, look, we're not, we're not, we're not doing anything wrong." <laughs> well, I, I do think, and Microsoft, of course, has an irrational fear because they, you know, when they were forced to unbundle Internet Explorer, they took a lot of, uh, they lost a lot of competitive edge, and it was very bad for their reputation. It was very bad for their business model. Uh, Windows became much less compelling and it allowed Netscape Navigator to take the market for a long period of time. Eventually, they were able to borg their way into the market and and do this. But, you know, bundling Teams and Microsoft Office, I, I fundamentally regard Microsoft Office as malware. So it's fundamentally good news that if I wanted to just put Microsoft Teams malware on and not get the whole suite of malware from Microsoft, that would that would be okay. I do use the browser, so I'm not if I am forced to use Microsoft Teams, then I just use the browser version. That's a pro tip for anybody who's listening. Yep. Um, what I do wonder, though, is when will the EU, who seems to be the only people that want to police this, would, do you think interoperability could become a big deal? Like the lack of interoperability is already a problem specifically for room-based systems. So we've seen Cisco's video conferencing hardware that's used in meeting rooms now supports WebEx and Teams today. So people basically went to them and said, we can't just buy your WebEx room conferencing systems um, because now we have to go and buy another one to have Microsoft Teams meetings because most of the people that we want to communicate with are using <laughs> Teams, teams, not WebEx, right? right? Yes. <laughs> so, and and I think, you know, Zoom's in a similar situation. If, if Cisco wants to make that, you know, video conferencing, I'm sure Polycom's in a situ similar situation, you don't really want to have to run... Microsoft Teams and Microsoft WebEx and Microsoft Zoom on your room video conferencing, if that even stays as a category for very long. Um, do we need some sort of interoperability between them? And I, I think ultimately it's up to customers to demand it from vendors and say, you know, what's your roadmap for interoperating with WebEx and 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 Teams and, and Slack Zoom. and yeah, and, well, and uh, Slack and you know they should all be one, right? There's no reason for them. Imagine if email was like, oh, I'm using Google's Gmail, but I can't talk to Yahoo Mail. Imagine that. That's what yes. we've got. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, Microsoft in its blog did also say it's making further efforts to extend interoperability with competing products like Zoom and Slack and make it easier for competing products such as Zoom and Slack to actually host Office web applications on their platforms. Uh, I think they recognize that that's probably where the uh, European Commission is going to come at them a little harder. Uh, Reuters is reporting that some observers aren't convinced this is going to prevent any fines or actions uh, coming from the EU. Uh, and I will note there is no word on unbundling for the US. So if uh, we may be stuck <laughs> with it here. Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's up to you to decide, I suppose. And I would say I I don't mind the unbundling just so long as, you know, you can use the web browser version. kind of sucks, but at least it doesn't infect your computer. Uh, but I'd like to see interoperability. But this idea that Teams doesn't talk to WebEx is crazy. Yeah, it's very silly. Mm. 
All right, uh, moving on to some financial results. First, uh, Broadcom, they announced financial results for their third fiscal quarter. The company had revenues of $8.8 billion, up 5% over last year, and net income of $3.3 billion, which is also up over last year. Uh, by business unit, its semiconductor business accounted for 78% of revenue. Its software portfolio, which includes CA Technologies, Symantec, and Appnetta, accounted for 22% of revenue. Uh, and at $1.9 billion, that software revenue is up 5% over last year. So it looks like Broadcom's... Uh, effort to diversify uh, out of hardware is having an effect. Yeah, I think so. I think that commitment to doing software is something that tries to smooth out their revenues. Broadcom has been a hardware company, very much focused on producing silicon fiber channel, networking chips, ethernet chips, and so on. And they want to get a much smoother cycle so that investors can not experience the ups and downs of the share price as it follows the ASIC, you know, the manufacturing market. And now that um, they're starting to, that's why they're buying VMware, of course, right? Right. Yep. So it's interesting to me to say that the software business is booming. I mean, you can't talk about Broadcom without talking about VMware at the same breath, right? right. VMware had a, a mediocre quarter would be the best way to describe it. Um, the revenues were up 2%, but uh, they missed by 50 million. They had predicted uh, to be more, but their profit margins were up. So what I'm sort of seeing here is that VMware shares are up, profits are up, revenues are down. Profits are up is a very common story across the market, as we've seen, because the tech vendors have been cutting ad count, like cutting thousands and thousands of employees out. Um, budgets are much tighter. They're discontinuing entire product ranges. VMware has been no stranger to that as well. So I think sales are generally slowing down because the market is slowing down. So enterprise IT, which had a significant boom over the last three years, now we're seeing a definite pullback. There's also some inventory where certain customers bought a lot of stuff and they're still working their way through deploying it and extracting value from it. Um, but I do think that Broadcom's uh, an interesting problem because they still haven't got Chinese approval for VMware. And there was a pointed question during the call. I don't know if you saw this in the notes, but somebody, you know, one of the analysts said, what if the Chinese government doesn't approve it? And the CEO got really shirty with him. <laughs> so it is obviously an issue. It's obviously sensitive. I don't think he wanted it raised in the, for fear of antagonizing the Chinese government. So, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. That could be the finals, you know, something that could derail it. Yeah, uh, according to a story in the Register, during the uh, conference call, CEO Hock Tan did state that they've achieved clearances for all foreign investment controls in relevant jurisdictions. Uh, so I think maybe he was hoping that included China, but that direct question about China, he just said, I said what I said. So <laughs> I don't know how to parse that, but <laughs> I, I get that is like, don't, don't, don't talk about China. Just let's right, don't, not don't poke the bear. Don't, yeah, don't poke, poke the bear. <laughs> don't poke yeah. that bear because if it does, we could be in trouble. I just want, um, I would note that it was in 2018 that Broadcom relocated its headquarters from Singapore to the US uh, when it was bidding on the Qualcomm deal. Uh, and before that, it was due to brocade. There was a lot of pushback from the US government when they were buying a brocade for its fiber channel, and they relocated. The Qualcomm deal later fell through because it was felt that Broadcom was taking uh, too much market share in the hardware market in the end. Uh, but the VMware, of course, the software means it's not directly competitive to its hardware business, so that's a different sort of thing. Uh, yep. But Broadcom has very strong ties into China, of course, because a lot of its silicon manufacture happens there, especially for not so much for the leading edge stuff in the networking chips, but it's much, you know, the stuff back at 90 nanometers, 30 nanometers, 20 nanometers is all is made in China to a large extent. So they have, I would imagine that they have very good 
relationships with the Chinese government or very strong they're aware of or contacts with. So maybe they feel that it's going to go through, but you just don't know with China in the geopolitical climate. So here's be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, I think the concern is that China, if it wanted to, you know, strike back at uh, a U.S.-based company, the way that the U.S. has been trying to limit uh, Chinese companies, it could do this by scuttling the the uh, uh, Broadcom VMware deal. So that's why they're walking on eggshells. Um, we had mentioned last week uh, Nvidia's incredible results, uh, driven driven primarily by GPU sales for AI. Uh, that's also having an effect on Broadcom. The company said growth was driven in part by customers ordering its Tomahawk 5 and Jericho 3 AI chips uh, for building network fabrics to support AI workloads. So AI is not just lifting uh, NVIDIA's book, but it's also lifting Broadcom as well. Yeah, and I think that'll be a short term. At The the way I see it is that there's a few AI networks out there. There's a few customers for AI, and they're building networks of hundreds or thousands of servers, but it's not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of ports being shipped here. This is a very small, but it's new business, if that makes sense, Drew. Sure. Yep. Mm -hmm. Those servers have AI ports as well as normal networking ports. It's not all AI, right? So they would have, you know, multiple network adapters installed to accelerate the network traffic. And some of them would just be normal. (laughs) You know, this is the administration. So it's extra ports. So it bumped to growth, but it's not sustainable in the long run, I don't think. Ultimately, AI networking is a fairly limited industry. Not everybody's going to have thousands or there's not going to be millions of ports in the AI networking. So I've, I, short-term boost it is what I'm thinking. Yeah, well, see, I think um, given the hype around AI and folks seeing the benefits of things like LLMs uh, and not wanting to get left behind, there could be more of a gold rush that uh, goes a little bit longer. And if you are going to build uh, you know, a big data set and, and need to computation for it, you're going to need a fabric to put it together. So I think I could see five or six good quarters for Broadcom based on, you know, AI build outs as folks race to not be left behind. Mm, yeah, no, I can see that. I, I'd agree. Yeah. But it's not going to be a huge business. Like this isn't going to be replacing all of the core business Ethernet. Sure. If you line it up against, you know, building out a standard, you know, Ethernet fabric for a data center or selling switches and routers to, you know, the cloud titans, it's not going to be, uh, it's it's a smaller portion, but, you know, it could be, I'm sure they're charging extra for their AI chips at Broadcom. So <laughs> <laughs> it should be lucrative, even if it's yeah. not as big. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely, I, I just don't think it's going to be huge. I think you could, you know, if you look at financially, they're going to sell some thousands or tens of thousands of ports to Google, AWS, Equinox, you know, bare metal, as we talked about earlier, those people will buy some, but they're not going to be buying tens of thousands of ports of AI switches because there's just not that many servers. I mean, the the, the whole point of an AI server is that you've got eight GPU clusters and inside each of the GPU data boards, there's an internal high-speed network. And then on the motherboard, they're connected using NVLink, which is a high-speed network. And then uh, the NVIDIA A100s are using InfiniBand today. Right. So saying that you've got AI Ethernet is kind of like, uh, but if you're partnered with NVIDIA, are you actually using Ethernet or are you just using InfiniBand? Right. Well, that's also, uh, I think, spurring the Ultra Ethernet Consortium, which we talked about earlier, but that's also a conversation for another day. Yeah. And that's a long way down the track. That's not something that's going to appear right. this week or next yeah. week. You know, that's a no, long sure. way down the track. Yeah. All right, well, that wraps up the news. Uh, we've got all the links in the show notes if you want to check it out. Uh, please stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation. Uh, and with my guest co-host, uh, Ethan Banks, we're going to talk to the founders of a new independent network automation conference happening this November in Denver. If you're curious about that, uh, stick around and listen. It's coming right up. 
Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking to the Network Automation Forum about who they are and their upcoming inaugural conference called AutoCon Zero. It's happening November 13th and 14th, 2023 in Denver, Colorado. Wait, not Las Vegas? That is refreshing. I'm Drew Conry-Murray. I'm joined by Ethan Banks and here to tell us about the Network Automation Forum and AutoCon Zero are Chris Grundeman and Scott Robon. Uh, Chris, what is the Network Automation Forum? What are we, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so the Network Automation Forum uh, is exactly that, I guess. It's a forum for discussion, uh, a salon, if you will. Uh, they used to be around. Um, we're really here to bring together engineers, architects, developers, and others, right? Anybody who's you know making automation happen in their network, uh, trying to help others make network automation happen in their network, or just really need some network automation to move their operations forward uh, across enterprises, service providers, uh, and vendors as well as consultants, to really get together and discuss what's next for networking, trying to kind of um, keep the conversation moving forward and help out because, you know, we've been talking about network automation for a long, long time and the deployment numbers are still pretty low. Uh And we really do believe that what's next for networking includes plenty of automation, orchestration and observability. Um, So we want to create dedicated events, reports, webinars, articles, videos, best practices, uh, whatever is needed to keep that conversation rolling forward. Is it a conversation? It's not a it's not a standards body, Chris. No, no, not at all. Like I said, kind of more of a forum, more of a salon. We want to, you know, have a locus point that's vendor neutral where folks can come together and talk. Right. You know, again, kind of really get that multi-stakeholder model. Uh, but we don't think we're going to create standards. Maybe best practices might come out of it. That might be something we can bring together and publish in the future. Uh, right now, we're really focused on on our first event and kind of getting that com- or joining the conversation that's already ongoing and then see how we can help. Yeah, just to tack on to that, you know, it's it's you're going to ask us questions that we might not be able to answer yet because we don't know why there's been the friction, the attenuation, right? And the focus on bringing people together for this first event is to figure out, okay, why are we where we are? And then, you know, make some go forward plans from there. Why are we where we are is in network automation hasn't exactly taken over. It's still challenging, difficult to implement. There's a lot of I don't know about confusion, but I mean, there's just so many different approaches and there's no one right way to do it. Um, and maybe maybe we can lay some of that with uh, the vendors. Now, Chris, you had mentioned vendor neutral. Does that mean vendor exclusive? No, not at all. I think from the kind of back off and look at who are these stakeholders, I think vendors have to be at the table. Absolutely. You know, along with the consultants and, and solution providers that are out there helping make this happen. And then the folks that are actually operating these networks as well. So we want to include all three of those groups and, and make sure that they're talking and on a level playing field, really. Because I think there are some vendor messages out there that, that lean towards architecture or buzzwords or those kind of things. There's also sometimes a vested interest by vendors to, you know, use their solutions with their products, with their devices. Um, and obviously that's not going to work for everyone. Very few networks are heterogeneous in that way. And so we really need to have this conversation both across vendors, but then between vendors and, and the folks that are using and deploying these tools. So you've called it a salon. Is there a place online where people can gather, chat, share information, uh, communicate with each other? Yes. Um, well, right now, so yes and no. So right now we've got the website up, networkautomation.forum. It's got a lot more information and definitely info on the on the conference we'll talk a little bit more about. And we are planning to create some other forums for discussion. I think probably a Slack group, mm-hmm. uh, which is TBD. Uh, folks can sign up for the mailing list on the website right now. And then from there, we'll scoot into either an email mailing list or a Slack group or, or something else to really let that conversation flow naturally. So Scott, maybe another question is, I think we can see the need, but why the Network Automation Forum now? Why is now the right time to start having this conversation? It's a great question, right? And I think, you know, Chris has touched on it, but uh, 
I would put the number at 20 years that we've been talking about doing better with automating processes in our networks. And uh, it's just the uptake is slow. We want to get to the reasons behind that and start motivating reasonable steps forward. You know, maybe pour some kerosene on the, the flames that are flickering and the places that they are just flickering. But I think the biggest piece of validation that we've gotten as Chris and I started to put this together and validated the idea was, wow, yeah, there's a real hole in our space for really focusing on network automation. And, you know, you could spend a career going to conferences and not do any other work. I won't say not do any work. You'll see network automation pop up in multiple different fora, but uh, it doesn't get the focus that we want to put on it. So, and again, we've gotten, I think, pretty good validation that putting focus just on this set of problems in, in the networking space is really useful. So I guess then that brings us sort of to AutoCon Zero, which is the, I guess, inaugural event that the Network Automation Forum is putting on. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is, what it's meant to be? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, as you said, this is kind of the inaugural event. Um, we're going to start with this, you know, single in-person event this November in Denver, Colorado. We do expect this to grow into a recurring event to be held once or twice a year. More, more importantly, we expect this to be the foundational moment for this community to come together and, and advance the state of automated network operations. So uh, again, it'll be an in-person event in Denver, the 13th and 14th of November. And you know we're gonna bring together all those stakeholders we've been talking about, right? There's gonna be vendors there, there's gonna be consultants there, there's gonna be service writers there, there's gonna be enterprise uh, network engineers there, kind of the whole gamut of folks who are really trying to move the needle here. And you know, again, really foster that conversation. So we're going to have a series of obviously talks and panels uh -huh. and lightning talks and a lot of community engagement. Hopefully, you know, the stuff on stage will be mirrored just as much by the folks in the hallway. You know, continuing these conversations and then taking them back with them. So really, we're hoping that this is a locus. And again, you know, we just see a little bit of a gap in the events out there. There's lots of great networking events. There's some great vendor events. What we don't see is a specific network automation event uh, that is vendor neutral and really focused on bringing everyone together uh, on an even playing field. Chris, there's lots of uh, information on YouTube, presentations and so on that have been done on network automation. So what's the what's the, the tenor of the conversations going to be? What kind of talks are you planning to put on stage that's maybe different from what we've been hearing? What we're really focused on is sharing experiences. So what we want to do is hear from folks who have successfully deployed network automation in some form or fashion and then share those stories. I think, you know, one of the problems that has happened so far is we get some really uh, opinionated experts giving their advice on how to do things. Here's the steps or here's the tools to use, which just aren't one size fits all. And I think that's one of the biggest problems for network automation, you know, not to jump too far ahead of the punchline that we're going to try and figure out at this event. But I think one of those issues is, you know, networks have up till today been handcrafted, right? There's lots of different ways to build it, whether it's which devices you choose, which OSs you use. And then even within that, even if you were exactly the same network architecture and devices in two networks, there's a very good chance that whoever wrote the configs wrote them slightly differently because there's almost always more than one way mm -hmm. to uh, to design that network or build that network. And so dropping in, you know, one size fits all solution just won't work. I and mean, that's why these kind of, you know, I think expert pundits that are well-intentioned in telling people how to do this are missing the mark a little bit. And so we want to roll that back and focus on, again, success stories as well as missteps and try and learn from each other. Take the parts, you know, from those stories that, that can help you and ignore the stuff that doesn't apply in, instead of kind of trying to lay out the how-to book just you know, tell these stories and, and learn from each other's experiences. Ethan, your question couldn't be more timely. We've been immersed this week in finalizing the agenda and working with our advisory board and putting emphasis on 
bringing the doers to the table and everybody having an action item to share a couple practical things that they did to get started. This might not be the right thing for you or for every network, but you know we're, we're making it a point to say, here are things that people can do to get started. So there are real practical takeaways from the event. Right, Chris, you had mentioned the hallway track. And I think that's sort of one of the values of an in-person event. Are you doing other things to sort of facilitate those person-to-person or small group conversations in addition to, you know, just one speaker blasting out their message to a bunch of people? Yeah, one piece of that is just making sure there's space in the agenda. There's going to be, you know, quite a bit of breaks. We're going to have a happy hour on site. We're trying to pull together a social event for the first night as well. Mm -hmm. We're going to have breakfast and lunch served on site, you know, in the venue during the event on, on, on the Tuesday. And right now, it's uh, still to be determined as far as the exact details, but we're definitely focused on having some birds of a feather tables, maybe some breakout rooms, mm-hmm. and, and really facilitating that. So hopefully, at least there's space there where folks can come listen to the, you know, listen to the conversation from the stage and then go talk about it themselves. Um, but we also want to be prescriptive about that and try and provide some really specific spaces for specific topics. Also, the way we're going to close the conference, the last session of the conference on Tuesday afternoon, for those who want to stick around, is an open discussion of takeaways and what folks can do, you know, to go out and and make them, you know, make the needle move at their own organization uh, based on what we heard and, and what everybody's talked about during the week. I like that as kind of a wrap up as a way to give people almost like an agenda item or, you know, a to-do list they can actually bring back with them as opposed to just, you know, I went and got a t-shirt and now I'm back to the same old thing when I get home. Exactly. I automated my network and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. So um, we're also trying to do some fun things in terms of prep and using new tools and tech to get more inputs from a broader audience before the event actually starts. And then, you know, do some creative things with AI related tools to maybe summarize and organize some thoughts that we can, we could walk into sessions with lots of, uh, lots of participant and broader audience input to really make some, some good ties between, you know, the thought that's gone into the event and what actually gets talked about at the event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to underline that, right. We really are going to focus on some surveys and bringing that content from the audience onto the stage and back and forth, right. We even let lots of time for Q and a as well. That's another unique problem that we've had too. again, in terms of validating response for this, we got way more talk proposals than we'll ever have time for in this event. You know, we can't say that everything will carry over to the next event and the event after that, but we probably have enough content that's been proposed for two more events after this. Uh Now, uh, Packet Pushers is going to be a media partner uh, with Network Automation Forum for AutoCon Zero. Uh, Drew and uh, I are both going to be there. We're going to be on site. We don't have the exact plan of what we're going to be doing when we get there, but we're definitely going to be doing some recording. We're going to be working with NAF and uh, and being a presence at, at the event. Well, you know, so many uh, of the folks listening to this, I'm I'm one of the listening audience. You you guys go with me on my walks and runs and uh, drives. Um, we love the fact that you're interested in helping us promote this, and we really feel like your broader audience would. Uh, there's going to be a lot of alignment with. Uh, folks who are interested in network automation who are already packet pushers listeners. Yeah, Absolutely. this is a conversation yeah. that needs to happen. I, I couldn't be more enthusiastic myself because as packet pushers, we've been talking to people who've been doing automation, talking to vendors about their approach to network automation, talked about going back to Yang and the Yang doctors, getting all excited in the IETF and building models and 
And yet the future isn't here yet. We seems like we just keep talking about this future we're eventually going to get to where everything's automated and, and it's and it's easy and there's a way to do it. And it just hasn't happened. So, I mean, I, I couldn't be more excited about this conversation that the Network Automation Forum is uh, is making happen at Autocon Zero. Well, we'd like to take... You know, the hype cycle, which really is the the hamster on the little wheel that keeps running and unfold the wheel and turn it into a real roadmap and highway that people can actually use. So I'm a pretty big hamster, but I I guess I won't comment further on that. (laughs) (laughs) So if people are interested in finding out about the Network Automation Forum and details about uh, Autocon Zero, where should they go? Yeah, networkautomation.forum. Uh, it's a lot of letters, but hopefully pretty easy to uh, to remember and type in. Uh, if you go to networkautomation.forum, there is a register now button in the top right corner of all the pages. Obviously, there's lots of information there about NAF in general, uh, the event specifically. Uh, we'll have the agenda up probably by the time you hear this. We're working on it right now. And there's lots more information there. Again, you can register as well as sign up for the mailing list. And uh, yeah, we'd love to see you in Denver this November. Please do that on the website. Also, you can see our our group on LinkedIn. There's a lot of good interaction there. Again, Ethan and others have been really good at at amplifying some of the messages we've been putting out there. Lots of announcements coming out in the next couple of weeks there. As far as the number of registrants, uh, I mean, it's I think it's fair to say register sooner rather than later. This is, I, I know you still have slots open, but there's been a lot of interest. And uh, this is going to be a small gathering for the first time around, right? Yeah, we are going to cap attendance uh, maximum of 400 folks total. Uh, we want to make sure that this, you know, again, is a conversation and not just a big broadcast uh, event. And so we're intentionally going to cap registration. And uh, yeah, definitely. I, I'm fully confident we're going to sell out well before the event. So if you're interested, um, now is the time. We still have uh, early bird registration open. The super early bird expired, but the early bird is still open. So it's a little bit cheaper than if you wait till the end. And honestly, I don't know if we're going to sell any full price tickets. So I, I think we might sell out before we get there. That would be okay. That's a great problem to have. Absolutely. Okay. So one more time, that is networkautomation.forum. Go check it out. You can uh, find the registration button in the top right of the page and also more information about Network Automation Forum. And of course, the AutoCon Zero Conference is again happening November 13th and 14th, uh, 2023 in Denver, Colorado. Uh, Thank you, Scott. uh, And thank you, Chris, for joining us. And thanks to you for being a listener. If you like this episode, you can find it in many more fine free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packapushers, hear us on Spotify, and if you would, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.